Hey, welcome to Thrivers, nonprofit leadership for the next normal. I am your host, Tucker Wanamaker, the CEO of Thrive Impact. Our mission is to solve nonprofit leader burnout and to right some of the injustices that are happening against nonprofit leaders because burnout is the enemy of creating positive change. And we want to connect you with impactful, mission-driven leaders and ideas so that you can learn to thrive in today's nonprofit landscape. I'm joined today, as always, by with my co-host, uh, Sarah Fanslau, oh, hey, our Chief of Impact. Sarah, <laughs> it's good to be with you here this morning. Great to be here. We're having some fun already this morning, I've yeah, noticed. Yeah. Uh, we're <laughs> laughing about all the things. Uh, and uh, today's topic and today's guest uh, are ones um, uh, that are close to my heart. Uh, the, the guest today is a gentleman named Jason Jans. Jason, I'm going to introduce you here in just a moment. Um, and the topic is one that's really near and dear to uh, our collective mission, which is around solving nonprofit leader burnout and particularly around the investing in nonprofit leaders themselves. And when I said even in the intro around writing some of the injustices happening against nonprofit leaders, this is one of them mm. is the significant lack of investment in nonprofit leadership. Sarah, I know you have some data or some thoughts around this, but Sarah, curious what you've seen in the space when it comes to this particular topic. Yeah, absolutely, Tucker. I mean, there is a lot of data that speaks to this challenge. Um, you know, a study from earlier was around 2013 found that around 73% of nonprofit leaders have indicated that they don't have the resources to develop their leadership. And, you know, you may say, okay, that's pretty bad, but it's really bad when you compare it with opportunities for folks who are in the private sector. So private sector companies spend on average four times as much on professional development as nonprofit organizations every year, every single year. And, um, you know, this underinvestment is caused by a lot of things, but a lot of it is just about the dollars. Nonprofit organizations don't have the dollars um, in many places to do this leadership development. Um, and part of it is about the funding landscape. So less than 1% of foundation dollars go to developing the nonprofit workforce. So, you know, there's just a lot of issues here and the underinvestment really causes significant challenges. Um, you know, the lack of development and growth opportunities ranked second on the list of concerns next to salary in terms of retention related challenges for folks in the nonprofit sector. So, you know, if we want to have a thriving sector and we want talented people to come and stay, we've got to fix this problem. Yeah, it's a big issue. It's a big issue. And I've noticed too, some of the psychological uh, issues as well. I've, I've been in some different uh, mastermind communities in the business world or entrepreneurial world. I've been facilitating for a few of them, and I've had some of these conversations around nonprofits. And, you know, it's almost this expectation in the for-profit and especially the entrepreneurial space. Like, why aren't you a part of two or three mastermind communities, which is yeah. leadership development, really? And in the nonprofit space, it's like literally the complete opposite. And when the, I talk to some of the business leaders, they're like, why don't they do that? And like, well, there's these psychological barriers and, and almost weights that almost this belief that if I invest in myself as a leader and, and in our leaders, it's like as if we're stealing from the mission. Mm. I mean, it's really fascinating. There's like guilt involved here from a psychological perspective. So today's topic uh, is one that's really important. I think it, re it really is one of the injustices happening against nonprofit leaders in a systemic way. Uh, but our guest today is one who's uh, also uh, somebody who I have seen um, really be a forerunner when it comes to investing in the leaders that are a part of his team. And uh, our guest today is a, a, a wonderful friend of mine. His name is Jason Jans. 
He's the co-founder and the CEO of Cross Purpose uh, with a gentleman named Juan Pena back in 2008. Um, I loved, Jason, what you were sharing just a minute ago, that really what you were trying to do was figure out how do you live your faith differently in the, in the context of the neighborhood. And a lot of what Cross Purpose, I'll let you speak a little bit about Cross Purpose, but I know your work is deep in the trenches and I've volunteered for Cross Purpose. I've loved uh, being a part of that uh, organization as a volunteer of, of helping to eradicate people's spiritual uh, and economic and communal poverty specifically around workforce development, but sort of all the other components that are, uh, are, that are involved in how do humans come out of all kinds of different forms of poverty, especially uh, economic. Um, and Jason, I, I love the other thing you said of, you're really trying to look at, figure out what love really looks like. What does it really look like? And Jason, I, I just want to appreciate you. You, um, I've known you for a little over a year now. And, and I just have to say you have very much influenced my life already in the short time that we've known each other. Uh, you've influenced my children's lives. I thought about, you know, last summer when you noticed my son, uh, Buddy Wanamaker and you, uh, and you just invited him in to come and have a, have a little bit of a job at cross purpose that summer. And, uh, and you, the way that you love people is just so inspiring to me and has been, and it's deeply touched my life. Um, and so Jason, I, I'm just so grateful and honored to be able to have you on the podcast today. Um, good to have you here, man. Well, thanks for having me. What a, what a kind intro and I love you too. And I'm pretty convinced after our pre-talk, uh, with Sarah that, um, she's somebody I would love being around as well. So, and your family has been a blessing to me. Buddy is a light in my life and so he just texted me and said do i have a job at cross purpose this summer i was like <laughs> i was like that's awesome yeah he's he's one of the most um fearless people forward um young people i've met and so mm. we put him at the front door just to hug people and he's amazing <laughs> I love I'm that. Not surprised. I love I'm not surprised. So Jason, tell us a little bit about Cross Purpose, just a kind of an overview of, of the work of, of your nonprofit. Um, and I know I gave a brief overview, but I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your work and, and also too around, I know that you've won some awards and I, I want to invite you to uh, share a little bit about those. Like you've won Best Culture uh, as an example, I believe over a few years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but share a little bit about Cross Purpose and, and your work there. Yeah, I think it just started with my wife and I wanting to live our faith out differently. So 15 years ago, we moved into an urban neighborhood in Denver, really to start a non-denominational church. But I was kind of tired of cheerleading Christians into basic obedience. And so I was like, if you're going to be part of this church, you have to have a ministry in the neighborhood or you cannot join, period, mm -hmm. end of story. I think I'd rather have 50 Marines than 500 National Guard any day. No, not, nothing against weekend warriors, but it's not my tribe. So, um, but then I knew we had to create opportunities for people to get engaged. And so we created ministries, pretty much realized we weren't doing much good. Like we had a lot of, we're serving a lot of people, but not having a transformative outcome mm. in their life. And so it came home for me with my next door neighbor who was working at the local Walmart, changing oil in the auto bay for over a decade. Uh, making 12 or 13 bucks an hour, but she was smart, had a management mindset. And I thought she should be making three times the money. Um, she was technically living in poverty and 
Um, but I realized all the things I had heard about solving poverty, like turkey dinners, Christmas gift, bikes for the kids, backpack drives, none of that. It was all topical. Uh, that was not going to solve the problem. And so started asking the question, what, how do you actually solve poverty? And, you know, I, I'm a man of faith, so I believe in love God and love your neighbor. And so what does love your neighbor look like in a way that would, I like how one pastor called it, the biblical idea of justice is to help somebody until the need is completely met. Mm-hmm. And I think most, I mean, speaking from my Christian community, most charity is drive-by and it's not substantive. And so, um, so then we then formed a program in 2012 and took 19 families in our neighborhood and said, we're going to do whatever it takes to get you out of poverty. We were following a national model that turned out to not be so hot. So six months in, we realized <laughs> there was not much there. So we canceled our contract with them and had to figure it out on our own. But I think there, there's a Bible verse I hold that says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if you just follow that, you can figure everything out. Um, I like a reliable car. I like a job that I like. I like a nice recliner when I go home. If I just say I want that for my neighbor, like that'll, that'll show me the path to go down. So started with uh, 19 families and my next door neighbor joined that uh, first class. Now we're 10 years later. This year we'll help 400 families. Um, on that journey. It's a six-month program, but then there's a follow-on program for alumni that will not just help them with their job, but actually helps them build wealth. And that's the, the new frontier for us is wealth building as a way to stop intergenerational poverty. And the great news is, is my neighbor now has bought her own home. She's a vice president of an organization, uh, company, and uh, she's now on our board. So she's now my boss, so she can fire me. I <laughs> well, so I think that's just a, that's just all I want to do is scale that locally here so that more people can experience what I've experienced. I just, you know, Tiffany, my neighbor brought me life and, uh, mm. and, um, we loved her. She loved us and what a joy that was. So Tucker, you came in and volunteered in that capacity to be a lover and I'm seeing it happen. I just, I just feel like I want to like strengthen the whiskey, like in the next 10 years, like make it so potent. <laughs> that uh, it's so powerful that it becomes a testimony to and that's what our world's at right now. It's just, it's lacking the love. And uh, mm-hmm. so it might be a too long of an explanation, but that's essentially what cross purpose is. Mm, I love that. I really appreciated what you were sharing around <laughs> just very practically love myself or love my neighbor as myself. And what is, what do I love? And then perhaps they might love it too. You know, I mean, just very straightforward, simple, like not esoteric. We might all be somewhat similar. Well, and and Jason, I know that underneath the surface of your mission at Cross Purpose are leaders themselves, are people uh, who are on staff, who are volunteering, who are who are who are doing work and. and again, I know that you've won some awards around being one of the top places to work from a nonprofit perspective in Denver. Uh, and I'm curious, as you have dove into uh, the mission itself, what have you noticed about what needs to happen when it comes to investing in the very people who are actually doing the work with you and including yourself? What have you noticed is important? 
in doing that kind of work? Yeah, it's a broad question. Yeah, we have won the Denver Business Journal's Best Places to Work three years in a row now, and we just won it in the large company category. Hmm. And and usually you know, there's 15 companies in each category that win it. So I think roughly 60 companies win that. And usually two are nonprofits, you know. Yeah. And it just goes to what Sarah was talking about in the intro. Um and and I, it's a big challenge. I, I so I, I say first of all, people think because you are running a nonprofit and you have an altruistic mission, that that's going to hold people for the long haul, and that's just not true. Um, and so we then make a bunch of compromises, and we we end up looking at the sector differently than the private sector, and I think that's fundamentally a mistake. Um, if we need great talent in the private sector to ten x a company. We need the same thing around, in fact, more in uh, the social sector where human need is, is so powerful and the work is so taxing. So I often believe, first of all, the thing that has to change is the mindset of the key leader. And it would be easy for us to blame it on everybody else. But I have found that the first person needs to change in the mindset is me. So I can't approach leadership development from a scarcity mentality fundamentally. And I find that when I bring this stuff to my board, they rarely say no or even tweak it. They're always like, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, I was like, we need to up compensation. Jason, that's awesome. Why don't you do a compensation study and present it to us? And I do it and I present it like, yep, that sounds good. Let's do a three-year change of compensation and raise everybody 20 30%. Like, now, I, I granted not everybody may have that board, but that's also the job of the executive leader is to build help build a board that's on mission and values, not just because they're president of XYZ famous company in town, right? Mm -hmm. So so I think I've had to change my scarcity mindset around my own development and the development of my team. And a great clue, I think is what Sarah said, is the private sector, just mirror it. So if they have 4X, then what does 4X look like for us in our budget? Because I agree with Sarah, it comes down to money. That's where everything gets vetoed. And so if you say, well, so on the values, number one is people matter and your staff matters more than the clients you serve. And I think that might be nonprofit heresy, Ooh. but you have to believe that the people serving the people are your most important. Um, it's most, Jim Collins says this in good to great, right? It's you find great people, you win and you don't, you lose. And so, so then if you've got to find great people, then how do you retain great people? And it will not just be with the mission. One of my friends who is an early board member, and she's a corporate attorney, and she said, Jason, um, I don't think there's anything inherently more altruistic in a nonprofit versus a for-profit. In fact, she said, in the nonprofit sector, we often have a veil of self-righteousness around us that actually mm. hurts. I was like, whoa. Whew. Because we have this altruistic mission, then then everybody then can foist upon, hey, you need to sacrifice your firstborn to work for a nonprofit. And we start compromising all this stuff because of the nature of the mission. And I'm like, no, 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 let's think the opposite. We need to over-resource leaders and um, keep them. So right now, you know, I think nonprofit turnover is like 30%. I think last year we had 16% turnover. Yeah. And I watched that number because that tells you 
you know, if you're actually really retaining, first of all, hiring the right people and then retaining the right people. But I'm not leaning on the mission to be the the only source of staff retention. Mm-hmm. I, I actually feel like post-sabbatical, I want to say on our benefits page for working with us, I want to make a video that says the greatest benefit of working at Cross Purpose is you're actually becoming a better human being. You're going to be a better spouse. You're going to be a better leader. You're going to have better rhythms in your life. You're going to feel like you've actually are figuring life out versus always reacting mm-hmm. to it. And I want to make that promise. Um, and that's my drive. I mean, I, 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 I love our team. And so, and you know, I'm at the point now where that we have 65 employees, so I don't really touch the frontline work that much. Mm. So I got to sit there and say, man, if we want rock stars, and we want them for a long time, we got to resource them. So a social worker in our town will make $40,000 a year. And I think our ours are now making 60. Um, mm. Plus they get a 5% performance-based stretch goal compensation bonus at the end of the year. So what nonprofit gives you, you know, there's an additional couple grand you can make here at Christmas versus the typical Hey, we're a nonprofit. You get a $50 Christmas bonus to have a dinner with your wife at Chipotle. So I'm <laughs> rambling a little bit, but yeah. you, just, you just hit a hot button with me around like the number one resource is our staff. So let us compensate them well. Let's only require 40 hours a week. Let's give them two days off a year for a day of solitude. Um, let's take a retreat every year as a company. And we don't talk about work and how to be a better human at all. We just go play volleyball and, you know, campfires and s'mores and good steak. And then everybody gets a sabbatical for three months after six years of employment, plus a $10,000 stipend to blow on the sabbatical to do a bucket list stuff that you want to do. That's, that's the direction I'm going, but I'm not, we're not all the way there yet. I, I have like, I'm only filled out 50% of the vision of like mm-hmm. what I want a staff culture to be like in a nonprofit. And Jason, so remind me, what's the size of your nonprofit? Are, you're a big, you're a big organization. Is that right? As far as budget? Well, and number of employees, what does it look like? We have a lot yes. of small community-based nonprofits, right? You have a big vision and a bunch of resources you're putting against it as a small community-based nonprofit, maybe with 10 employees. What is the lesson I can learn from you, even if I don't have the budget to do everything you're doing? Yeah, we're 65 employees, uh, $10 million. Um, four years ago, we were $2.5 million. Uh, 10 years ago, we were 300000 So. I do want to say to uh, 75% of all nonprofits in the U.S. are under a million dollars of revenue, right. 66% or 500,000 yeah. of revenue. So I get it. I've lived it. Um, and I think that's why I said fundamentally the first thing that has to change is, your, is a, the scarcity mindset. To mm. think that you cannot do this until you're big is like saying to yourself, when I become rich, then I'll give more. It just mm. never happens. And so start, you can set the culture now um, and do that. And I would just say where we get into the pinch, if you're a half million dollar, million dollar nonprofit, when I say a $10,000 stipend or a raise of compensation, you default because you're a good human and you go, but then we'd have to cut back program and we'd impact less people. And the answer Mm -hmm. is Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly. so waiting for this moment. <laughs> That's your <Cut> one. <laughs> program 
and build your people and your program will eventually grow. But that's the lagging factor. The leading factor is your health and the health of your team. Mm. Hey, hey, permission. I I just want to speak to everybody on this podcast. You need you. You have permission to do this. Like you deserve it. Your team deserves it. And you're already laying it out there for your neighbors. So like, it is okay for you to give yourself permission to take a break, to have a normal schedule, to not be stressing out with your end fundraising campaigns, and to go to your board and say, I want a sustainable future here. And uh, you have permission to do that. You should do that. It is not a crime in the nonprofit world for self-advocacy. And this is not just uh, – this is not – and I know – you get the attack from private sector donors sometimes that they always want us to knock down this quote unquote overhead thing. That's, and that's all uh, its own uh, kerfuffle, but just lead the, create the organization you actually want to work for and be in for 10 years. Even if you're not going to be there for 10 years, create that environment. You have the power to do it. You have more power than you think you do. Hmm. I love that. Tucker and I have just been working recently with a few organizations who are struggling with just that this um, they know they're doing too much. We've gone through exercises about what based on impacts to viability could be cut. And often the people doing the work know it and want to make the change. And it's the leader who is caught between the board and the staff and often doesn't feel like they have that permission to say, you know what, we're going to stop doing this so we can double down on our unique value. And I love that you just gave people permission to do it. That's what they need. They need permission to go do it. 100%. I say to my staff all the time, they're like, I'm so busy. I have so many meetings. I say, you know what? You have more control over your calendar than you think you do. Yeah, stop it. Turn <laughs> down. The like, you know, I don't have time. I don't have time to work on the business. I just work in the business. Well, it's your fault. Like, take Fridays and don't take any meetings and let the email stack up and just get your brain around it and, and give yourself the rhythm so you don't feel like you're always in panic mode, you know? And Ian here speaks, this is why I love your podcast, because we don't have the levels of professional development um, like these masterminds and these C. I mean, I've joined a CEO circle three years ago because I was like, I don't have anybody else to go to to like teach me how to manage this nonprofit thing. And that's been like a master's degree for me and just mm. executive leadership just by being in the water once a month for a full day with these 15 CEOs that are all for-profit companies. Mm. But we run our nonprofit with the heart of Jesus and the head of private business. Mm. Hmm. Wow. I just want to like let people pause for a moment and reflect on the words that have been shared here because Many times we don't learn from our experiences. We learn by reflecting on them. And I think in this case, inviting people and all of you who are listening right now, like literally pause this podcast right now and reflect on those words. You have permission to do this. You have capability to do this. And if it means to cut your program so that you can invest more in your leaders, then do that. I mean, this is, these are, you talked about the compromises uh, earlier and people compromise leaning into the mission, right? They were leaning into, you know, investing more into more programs, more, more impact, more out, which is, which is not necessarily wrong, 
but at the expense of sacrificing people on the altar of that. And I love just how you shared earlier, the staff matters more than those that you serve. Yeah. Simon Sinek, his book, The Infinite Game, he talks about, you know, you have the short game, the long game, the infinite game. And if you're involved in justice-based nonprofit work, you are in an infinite game. And he's, you know, a short game is the NFL. Three hours, the game's over, you know who wins and loses. If you're in an infinite game, you actually will not, the game will not finish in your lifetime. You will simply pass the baton to the next leader. So if you're not going to solve your problem and 95%, 99% of nonprofits are not going to actually solve the problem they're out to solve. They're going to help move the ball forward. Okay. So then if you're, if you're going to be in it, even for like mother Teresa for 49 years and you're not going to solve the problem, then what pace would you want? How would you want to live the next 49 years mm. so that you could do the work and be, be a good enough human to be able to pass the baton on and not die an angry, bitter person? Yeah. yeah. That's how I want to backward design my life and say, that's how I'm going to try to live it. And actually the decision is what am I going to do the next 24 hours? <laughs> I don't live in this imagined world of one of these days when I finally have a million dollar budget, what is my next 24 hours and how can I change that? Mm, yeah. It reminds me of, I don't know if you know the Jewish proverb, proverb, you're not required to finish your work yet. Neither are you permitted to desist from it. Um, right. We won't finish the work in our lifetime, but that doesn't mean we're allowed to not engage in it. Um, cool. But, you know, cool. this idea that I, I think that's what often gets folks, right, is the idea that we can somehow finish the work and that by constantly doing more, but not necessarily better, um, that, uh, you know, we're fixing things. And I love your approach to saying, you know, we tried the charity approach. We tried giving backpacks and bicycles, or maybe you thought about it, but didn't try it. But we wanted to raise people out of poverty, so we changed our strategy, right? The end goal matters when it comes to the approach that you take in solving it. Um, and so often we see with nonprofits, they're doing a lot of things. But when the question is asked, what difference does it make and how are you measuring that? You know, folks don't have a lot of an answer. And it's, you know, it's this movement from um, from charity to change that we talk about that that Bill Milliken often brings up. Right. And really mm -hmm. being respectful and responsible with your dollars and your time in support of that change, both for the individuals working on it and for those who are benefiting from it. Mm. Yeah, I talk often about activities based nonprofits versus outcomes based nonprofits. And activities just measures what you're doing. Oh. But I always say, what is the transformative outcome? Um, so if you're running a food bank and all you report on is how many people you fed, that's not a transformative outcome. That's an activity. It's an output. What are you actually, yeah, what are you actually totally. working towards as a transformative outcome? And the problem that nonprofit leaders face, and I get this pressure, you feel like if you feed a thousand people and you get three people to self-sufficiency, somehow you suck. And I'm like, no, that's amazing. And actually, you're going to talk to donors about the three, not the thousand. Every and time. we think we think because the donor, the, the thousand number looks better than the three, that the donor is not going to fund the three. Serious philanthropy is 100%. after the three, right? 100%. And if you focus there, your budget will grow. 
But I call it, uh, this is a terrible term, but high body count nonprofit work. We're, we're into like big numbers on impact reports yeah. versus transformative outcomes. And um, that will alleviate a lot of pressure for you to have to keep the program machine going with the high body count and go, no, let's just work for this transformative outcome. And it makes you do, actually do more honest work uh, and hold you more accountable. Oh, well, and, go, yeah. and going back to, uh, you know, the, the leaders themselves, you know, I, I think one of the things I've found is the more people are just doing activities, but not actually connected to the transformative outcome. It's kind of like, wait, why are we here? Wait, why am I here? Or there starts to be a waning of I'm just doing things, but I don't know how it translates. I'm just doing things, but I don't know what how it fits. Um, have you have you noticed this that the more you focused in on transformative outcomes yourself on the three that you're talking about, how has that shifted uh, the culture itself uh, of the leaders and the people that are on your team? Well, we only. Like even on budgeting and reporting to donors, we talk about a cost per graduate, not a cost per participant. And that's just the honest truth. Like if we're going to really be outcomes based. So everybody in the organization, we have six, we call them our organizational rocks. They're the goals for the year. And we have X number of graduates we want to graduate this year. And every department is moving toward getting the graduates across the line. And so our big transformative outcome is a graduate, which means they have a job at $20 an hour or more. If they don't have the job, they don't graduate. And it's, and it's, you know, it's painful at times when someone doesn't get the job the week before graduation, they can't walk, you know, but that's how we hold the line on the transformative outcome. And so then what you do is you drip in that outcome into your rhythms of your board meetings and your team meetings. So every board meeting, we have a mission moment where a graduate will come in or something like that to remind, let everybody touch. I don't care if you're in the back, 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 back office, um, you know, moving spreadsheets, you're going to be touching the frontline mission on a regular basis. I was just talking to Gary Haugen with International Justice Mission. They have, I don't know, I think it's like 1,300 employees globally, 250 yeah. And they have a daily prayer meeting and they are almost always the prayer requests are, Hey, we're in Sri Lanka and we have this situation here and we need prayer. And it's touching everybody to the, you know, anti-sex trafficking work that they're doing and they, they feel that connection. So I think it's incumbent upon the leader to make sure that the, the staff that's not community facing is regularly touching the reason why we're doing it in human form. And by the way, that takes work and planning and lining up the person and all that. But people need that, especially if they're just number crunchers. They yeah. they need to be inspired that what I'm doing here actually matters. Where as yeah. we grow and scale, we are having more back office than we are having front office, and uh, I'm watching that, you know, because that's mm -hmm. part of the whole culture. Yeah. Mm. Jason, I want to pivot just a little bit and um, get back to some of the things that you've talked about, which is focusing that you got to start with yourself. And I know you recently went on a sabbatical um, and sabbaticals is, are kind of an interesting topic actually right now in, in nonprofits of, you know, some people are funding them, but they're not, the people come back and it's, 
it's much worse than that when they left. And I, I don't know, there's, there's a lot going on, I think in that space, but I'm curious, uh, how you've leaned into and what you've really learned about yourself from the sabbatical that you went on, you know, you went through that journey, um, of prepping for it. I remember talking to you about this. You went for three months, um, and then you came back and I'm curious, just, a an honest noticing of what you've learned about yourself as a leader, and you spoke to it just a little bit, but kind of want to dig into it a little bit more of what have you noticed about yourself as a nonprofit CEO? <laughs> what have you noticed about things that you, you know, you're learning and need to shift and change yourself from having this space and time? Yeah, I'll start with saying, first of all, I think I was fairly cynical about the idea of a sabbatical. And I mean, I come from the clergy world. And so all these pastors, you know, needing this time off because it's so stressful. And, you know, I'm still a pastor to this day. And I just think pastoring is, um, it, it's not that hard of a job. Like it's a they're pretty cush job. They don't have to publish reports. They don't have to show outcomes. They uh, get to study 20 hours a week. I'm not saying it's not hard. I mean, I've done it. But like, I always felt like, why would I go get a three-month sabbatical as a pastor when the guy running the business or the woman uh, as an executive leader in a nonprofit on the fourth row they're not getting a sabbatical. So I thought it just seems like I'm not, I don't want to live in that world. It just feels like it's just, uh, yeah, whatever. So, and on the, on the nonprofit side, so then my board chair said, you need a sabbatical. You've been at this thing a long time. You've never taken an extended break. And, and, uh, so I was like, yeah, I, I, I have this issue with it and it's more of an equity issue. So like, I don't see why I have a more important job or more stressful job than the, the social worker on the front lines with a case management load of 25 people. I said, I could actually make a case that's harder than what I do. Well, yeah, but you have the stress of finances and staffing. I said, yeah, but I'm also built for it. And that's my gifting. So like, like, um, and if we're, we all have hard jobs, then I said, I don't really feel like it'd be great for me to take a sabbatical without everybody getting a sabbatical. And, and he was like, okay, then everybody can get one. And I said, that means even the custodian will get a sabbatical. He's like, yeah. And I said, well, then I also don't want to send people that are already not making killer money without being able to go spend money and go to Tahiti if they want, you know, so can we give a stipend, you know? And so we did that. So everybody gets a $10,000 stipend to go. So we have seven people going on sabbatical in 24 months uh, on the team. And I am pumped about it. Like they're, and everybody's geeked about it. So, um, and our custodian, you know, if you if you're in nonprofit work, you turn that position over about every six months. And uh, our our man, he's one of our graduates. Actually, he's been here for three years. So like, mm-hmm. that's huge. When and he has a stressful job, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's dealing with all the mess. Our building mm-hmm. has hundreds of people in it every day, and I can't wait for him to get his sabbatical. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's just the framing of it. And I think yeah. that gave me permission also to be able to go. And then, you know, what did I learn about myself? I mean, it's, um, it's a long answer, but I, I got a, a coach that specializes in this and I had two sessions with him and he gave me like five rungs of a sabbatical, um, a process you actually go through. And that made me take it a little more seriously. Um, and then prepping for it, they, they shut off my email, shut off my text message, instruct the staff not to talk to me 
like literally it was a complete brick wall between me and the organization. Um, so that was awesome as well. And, uh, then I think I learned a ton. I, so I would say some of the things I learned was just chill out. (laughs) (laughs) Just, I think I was, I was, our bucket list trip was a 16 day Mediterranean antiquities cruise. And my wife and I stood on this hill in Rome on a bike tour and overlooked the the um, Colosseum. And my my guide said, uh, Jason, Rome is the great lasagna, you know. And uh, I said, what are you with the lasagna? She said, yeah, there's civilization upon civilization upon civilization underneath this hill right here. In fact, we're actually standing on top of Nero's house. Hmm. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> The guy who took over just put dirt over the top of it because he didn't like Nero. And, and, but underneath that is another civilization, another civilization, you know. And so when you sit there and realize, okay, here I'm sitting in Rome and civilizations come and go and leaders come and go. And this has been happening for thousands of years. We're one little nonprofit in one little city in the Western United States, <laughs> you know, with a couple million dollar budget trying to do good work. And you know what? This whole thing may not be a lot around in 10 years. So, like, just chill. Like, it's not, <laughs> not that big a deal. Like, there, somebody gave me a book, and I, I covenanted that I would just ask a bunch of sages what I should do on sabbatical, and whatever they said I would do. It was my way of submitting to other voices. And so one guy gave me a book called 4,000 Weeks, and there's a chapter in it called Cosmic Insignificance Therapy. <laughs> it basically says for page upon page you are not that big a deal you are not going to change the world so take a break enjoy your vacation uh don't be so hard on your team and on yourself and uh that was great so i think i think the staff felt it they're still the jury's still out is if 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 i've really changed because i can be a fairly high strung like um, productive, demanding leader and all that kind of stuff. And so, in fact, somebody made a joke, you know, like, hey, we interviewed this person and she was high energy and high octane and really had a lot of thoughts and like seemed fairly driven, you know, like pre-sabbatical Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I love that there's now a pre and post Jason. <laughs> yeah, it's encouraging me and it's also scary. And I, I told my team, I said, guys, you're watching... Ruth Haley Barton said the greatest thing a leader brings to their leadership is their own transforming self. Yeah. I'm like, eh, I now believe that. Yeah. And I told my team, I said, you're watching me transform, hopefully in front of your eyes, and I might miserably fail. I might go back to pre-sabbatical Jason in three months. But you're asking to watch me fail in front of you. So, um, yeah. But that's all I know to bring to you is where I'm at today and how I'm trying to change, you know. Wow. So yeah. I, I think that's a big one was chill out. I wrote down a few things. Um, one of the quotes I read that was amazing was um, in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we learn that ultimately in this world, there is no finished symphony. And it was in uh, Ronald Rollheiser book. There is no finished symphony. And I think when you actually realize that, 
what you're working on will never be a finished symphony. I don't care if it's your marriage, your friendships, your parenting, or your work, your vocational life. It will never be a finished symphony. Accept it. That that then lets you chill out. Like, man, I'm striving for the finished symphony, and I know it'll never happen. That's like a, a little bit of a mind trick, but it has so helped me um, to just chill and relax and go, man, I'm going to go. I, I really want the symphony to be perfect, but that tube is going to hit a flat note, and that's just <laughs> This is life. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, I was going to say, it's going to make someone laugh. And you know what? That's <laughs> worth it. And yeah. it's, the, it's the best it's ever going to be. Yeah. You know, but if you foist, yeah. I need the perfect 10 vacation, the perfect 10 marriage relationship, the yeah. perfect, I need to be the perfect 10 parent. You know, parenting is essentially, I don't know one parent that doesn't struggle with regret, like on the daily. Like I should be doing more. Totally. I should be better. There's no finished symphony in parenting. You're not in control. Like those little beasties are going to kind of have a little of <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, mm. so I think everybody really appreciates the fact that I believe that statement. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so. I love this piece about like, what if we don't matter that much, right? Like what if we're taking ourselves too seriously all of the time? Right. And what would it look like for us to, uh, all of us, right? To be a little bit less concerned with um, whether we're personally winning or not, you know, and just what it looks like to be with each other as we go along for the yeah. ride. In this moment, all I know right now is I really am enjoying Tucker and Sarah. And, yeah. and when I reflect on the day in my evening prayer, I will be grateful for a conversation we were able to have about something meaningful. Yeah. And then I, I hope somebody listens to it and uh, the tuba actually hits a good note with them and they, <laughs> talk, to their, they talk to their board about taking a break. But, you know, if that happens, it's great. But today, right now, in this moment, I am enjoying it. Um, one quote I will share is, find the goodness of God in your actual life, not your imagined or desired one. Even if you're not a person of faith, find the goodness in your yeah. actual life, not this world you're trying to build and you'll enjoy everybody. Everybody will enjoy you more. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah Meg Wheatley, who Tucker and, you know, she's a, an amazing philosopher and we were, what was it? Almost a year ago, Tucker at that awakening conscious leadership thing that she was there, you know, and she's, you know, she can come across as a relatively cynical human being, but, um, she was saying the only change that we can really make these days is local, right? Like so many of us are, are trying to make this big change at the level of the, you know, the country or the state or the world. And um, that's not the time we live in anymore. And the real difference we can make is where we're at um, physically is in the things around us. And I think about that a lot because I think it's true. Um, yeah. And I would pile on with that, that, I actually was weird. We get pressure to scale nationally and all this kind of stuff yeah. as an organization. And, and a Walton uh, senior leader at the Walton Foundation said, Jason, national scale is so overrated for what it actually delivers. And so oh, yeah. do not do not lose the local piece. So as I was thinking about the scaling thing, I um, 
I asked I asked myself the question: What did Jesus say about scaling? He he actually led the most powerful movement I think in global mm-hmm. history, and so two thousand years later, a third of the globe is bowing to him. So like, what? Well, how did he scale that? You know, and he doesn't say anything about it. <laughs> he doesn't say anything about reaching uh, in a scaling plan. But in Matthew five, he gives this little passage where he says, let your light so shine before men that they can see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. So I, Jesus never talked about size. Yeah. He talked about luminescence Hmm. and actually everybody can gauge their luminescence. Like even a soul operator can be a really bright light. I mean, I'm friends with this woman who is uh, has a nonprofit um, and I won't say the name of it for privacy reasons, but her motto is to sue the hell out of the porn industry. Mm. She literally finds ways of breaking a law and sues them and has got MasterCard and Discover and Visa to quit taking Pornhub um, mm. uh, stuff. So and she's won all these suits against them, just a sole operator. But bright light, like I just try to get around her because she's so courageous, you know, the light is so bright out of that woman. And I just want to, you know, be exposed to it. And then I want to bring her to everybody I know and say, look at this courage. Mm -hmm. So I think I just want to encourage everybody listening. You are a light. Mm. And your light, you don't even understand. The reason the donors are giving to you is usually because of the light you are radiating from yourself. And they want to be around it. Mm -hmm. And so when you invest in yourself to become a brighter light through personal health and also like not living in fear and insecurity, just living out of the mission and saying, guys, we're not in this for the money, right? So like just say it and get out there and... I am convinced the impact you're having will actually, the, the biggest impact you're having will not show up on an annual report. Uh, it, it'll probably be at your funeral when people say, she said this to me at a meeting and it changed my life. Mm. And it, didn't, it, it was unmeasurable. I mean, this is, if you walk into our facility, we have this painting of Leaf by Nagel, which is J.R. Tolkien's autobiography. Mm. Tolkien basically is a story of this, this man who is painting a tree, but never could get the leaves quite right. And he dies and goes to heaven and sees the tree as he would have fully imagined it. And I use it as an illustration saying our little ventures we're doing are these little leaves. We're trying to get perfect and we never get them right. There's no finished symphony, but the imaginary tree was actually really happening. There's thousands of leaves out there. So be encouraged, focus on the luminescence of the light, not the size of the organization, all that kind of thing. And it will have the impact it's designed to have. Uh, But you cannot do that if your light is clouded with your own unhealth. So, Mm. so invest in yourself and in your team. Mm. Wow. What a rich conversation, Jason. I am, uh, I, I, I was at a a retreat last week and we, we had a co-created experience around our shared purpose of being there. And what really emerged for me was that the pathway to where you need to go is through healing, which is healing. Of, and for me, and that, I was one who ended up drawing it. And I realized that it's my own healing that needs to happen first before I go strategic, if you will, or 
you know, where we need to go. It's like, it, I need to go down first before I go up. Um, then I just am appreciating what you're sharing because our own healing is, if, is a dear mentor of ours, Dr. Daniel Friedland, who does, who is a lot of the basis for some of our work, you know, said, if we want to lead well in the world, the first place we need to lead well is within ourselves. Mm. And, uh, so Jason, I'm appreciating who you are and, uh, for taking those really courageous steps to heal yourself, to work on yourself, to lead well from within, to know who you are, to be that transforming self. And I, and I just, again, appreciate it because I've seen it, not just by you talking about on this podcast, but I've seen it in your life. I've seen it. Um, you're really the real deal, Jason, in, in terms of being, being that transformative self that who's sharing of your own transformative journey. And I just appreciate your honesty and your courage as well in doing that. Cause it's, it's a bright light that a lot of people need to. Well, hold me accountable. Cause, uh, if I fail at it, it's, it's going to affect your children. <laughs> Are we back to pre-sabbatical, Jason? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I yeah. bet that guy was a great guy, too. I'm not going to lie, Jason. I doubt that there's an either or. My guess is there's a middle. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with a, you know, a real difficult um, transition in a key relationship right now. And we brought a third party in and we spent hours together and um, there's a list of eight things that uh, where I'm an insufficient leader right now in how I'm leading, you know, um, the work I've got to do in the next 24 months to grow in those eight areas is going to be intense. You know, it's just like, I'm 50. Uh, I'm, I'm not piecing out. So it's like, I, you know, I got a decade or two to like really give to the work and I need to grow as a leader and uh, lean into these spaces. And I don't like it. It's very uncomfortable, but you know, we call it doing the work. Like you got to do the work. Um, yeah. One of my takeaways from sabbatical was a quote that said, the older I get, the less concern I have with what I have or have not done. Mm -hmm. And the more concern I have for what I have or have not become. And, um, hmm. my, one of my board members said to me at my birthday party last week, beautiful people don't just happen. It's, it's a quote, um, from an author, I forget the name, but, uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross, I believe. Hmm. And, uh, beautiful people don't just happen. So you have to do the self work, uh, because it is important. I want to say to the nonprofit leaders, uh, due to the nature that you have taken on the mission with your life says something beautiful about you um and the world needs pictures of beautiful people so the time you can invest in yourself to become more of a beautiful person will have an outsized impact upon your community and those who know you hmm. jason thank you so much for this incredible conversation um, thank you for the permission that you're giving to so many nonprofit leaders out there that are listening to this podcast who need it, who need that permission. And I think we all need that permission. We're not meant to do it alone. And I think that you're helping, uh, to give people permission to just do that thing that they know deep down is what they need to do. But there's so many things, uh, uh, they stuck in our heads and, uh, so much and just chill out and do the work internally and it's okay. It's good. 
it's meant to be. That's what you need to do. So thank you for just being who you are, Jason. Thanks for leaning into loving your neighbors and loving yourself. Uh, thank you for your faith and uh, for leaning into it in a very practical and real way. Um, and just thank you for doing what you're doing and for bringing your your light into this podcast and into out into the airwaves and the the podcast sphere um, to be able to share with others. So, yeah, and back at you guys, I I just want to say like. You know, Tucker, you know this. I've had a burden for the local ecosystem here of nonprofit leaders. And I think we now have 120 CEOs and we have this luncheon quarterly, mainly because it felt like it's an under-supported sector of leaders. And I've Always, seen like yes. the, the, the attendance at these things has stayed consistent over the last two years, which means, you know, everybody's busy, but they're all coming to these luncheons because... They just need the camaraderie and to swim in the water and to learn and all of that. And so I have a huge burden for what you guys are doing. And I struggle with the fact that um, I'm actually not called to make that my main profession. So I'm deeply encouraged that you guys are making it your profession because um, that's just encouraging me. And you're doing a far better job of it than I would do of it and uh, are being super thoughtful about it and bringing the voices together. So um, if the leaders are healthy, the communities will win. And so you guys yeah. are putting your energies into a catalytic spot uh, in, in the work. Thank you. Mm -hmm. mm. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Well, in the show notes, we'll have a little more about Jason. You can connect with him potentially on LinkedIn or go to their website, crosspurpose.org. And, uh, and Jason... I'm sure you always love it when people reach out, connect, maybe. Um, and so if you yeah, want to connect with Jason. Practical, if there's a practical thing I can do for you or I could send you a slide deck of my sabbatical report or if you want, um, yeah, whatever you heard in the podcast would be helpful. I'd be glad to forward to you. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Actually, if you have the, I was thinking the five, the frame that you were talking about around the sabbatical that sure uh, I think you had a coach for people who are starting to you know explore that journey um, that may even be effective frame for not sabbatical just taking a break I mean I'm, I'm guessing so yeah any of those types of resources would be great and we can put them in the show notes for people to be able to access and learn more about but awesome thanks so much Jason appreciate you and thanks Jason we'll see you soon be blessed you guys <laughs>